Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with Dr. Mike Walden, and uh, he has been with us so many times. I don't know how many times, but uh, I'm going to get Jason to research that one of these times, and uh, that way I will be able to say with certainty. But we've been leaning on him for advice for our listeners for years, and his advice is usually pretty much right on target. Uh, Mike, we we said right before the break we were going to focus a little bit on the national debt mm-hmm. and the continued deficits and the uh, spending levels. And, of course, this is an election year, so nobody is uh, really excited about cutting budgets because that might mean that uh, a loss of a vote here or there. So election years don't usually have de- uh, budget cuts. But where do we stand on the national debt? How much can we afford? Is it uh, reaching a level where it's going to be really high? Of course, rising interest rates mean that we're paying more on that debt. Well, I like to, and I get this question all the time. I just spoke to about 600 uh, accountants the other day in in Greensboro, and that question came up, and I was prepared for it. So this is always a good question, and I understand it's an important question. The way to look at the national debt, first of all, is not necessarily look at the amount. If you look at $32 trillion, you're going to say, my gosh, we're, we're, we're toast. There's no way we're going to pay that, pay off that debt. You don't really have to pay it off. What you have to do is carry it. I mean, think of, think of when you buy a house. You buy, well, if you're in Raleigh, you buy a $400,000, $500,000 house, which seems like a ton of money, but you're, you then pay a monthly amount to, to carry that. And as long as that monthly amount fits into your budget, you're, you're, you're pretty much fine. That's sort of the same thing at the, at the federal level with respect to the national doubt. Don't look at the, the amount, but look at the carrying cost. And, and then look at that carrying cost as a percent of all the expenditures of the, of the federal government. And what you see, Don, if you go back several years, we actually went through a period from about 1990 down to really about 2020, 2020, right before the pandemic, where the carrying cost on the national debt was actually going down because interest rates were going down. You mentioned that. So even though the amount was going up with interest rates going down, uh, it was actually getting cheaper to carry that larger amount of debt. In fact, some economists during this time were saying, hey, federal government, go out and borrow as much as you can, take advantage of of those low interest rates. Now, as you might expect, as interest rates have moved up, that has turned around, plus the fact we, we borrowed a ton of money during COVID almost $6 trillion in two years automatically put on the national debt. So the Congressional Budget Office, which is really the best forecast of this, is looking at and say 2030, we're probably going to be back to where we were before that, that decline I mentioned when things are going down. And the challenge this makes for the federal government is not that it can't pay it. It's that how do we want to pay for it? Do we want to raise taxes? which is not popular, or do we want to change what we're spending money on, spend money less money on some things in order to afford the, the national debt? So it, it's it's a practical, what's really a practical political question. It's not so much of an economic question. Uh, now, one other thing I'll mention real quick, Don, because I get this question too with respect to national debt. Someone will say to me, well, Walden, uh, we're, we're not buddy-buddy with China. Um, they own a lot of our national debt. Couldn't they just say pay up right now and call it? Wouldn't that put us in a, in a financial problem? And the answer is no, they can't do that. They, they, they bought a security from the federal government. It's got a term on it. They can't call that before the term. Now they could sell the debt to someone else, but they can't call it. So that's not really, that's not really an issue. 
But I like to I like to tell people just think about it if it's in if, uh, in your household. If you want to buy a bigger house, you can probably afford it. But either you have to earn more income to afford it, which would be the counterpart to more taxes at the federal level, or you have to sort of stop doing other things, which again would be a counterpart to the federal government saying in their budget, okay, we're going to pay more in the national debt, but we're not going to do X, Y, Z. Well, that's a that's a, a very interesting uh, assessment of how that works. So you're not particularly worried about the national debt, I take it. Well, I'm 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 in the sense. Well, it depends on what you mean by worry. If you if um, am I worried that we can't afford it? No, we can't. Uh, but am I worried that we might try to have our cake and eat it too and say, all right, we're going to load, we're going to afford that national debt, but we wanted these other things too which means much higher taxes. Now that this gets into the tax issue, are we overtaxed? Are we undertaxed? Should we tax rich people more? Should we tax poor people less? And there are a whole host of issues there. I tend to look at it from the point of view of, uh, if we tax more, that means we've got less money in the private sector and which part of the economy, the public sector, the private sector, best drives the economy. And I think you can make a case that, yeah, there are certain things government has to do and we want to fund them. We certainly, one of those things, of course, is to help folks who, who need a help. I'm all for that. But I think when we get into other areas where we might say, you know, well, the federal government could do this or maybe the private sector could do this. I think there's a lot to be said to looking at the private sector. Oftentimes they can do it more efficiently. We uh, always get questions about the, the, uh, Social security system, and uh, you know, from, I've been told for the last 50 years that it's going to go broke, and it hadn't gone broke yet. But uh, that is something that we can look at. People are living longer. And of course, that means more benefits are paid out, and of course, fewer people are working. Uh, where do we stand with the social security system? How sound is it? Here's the deal on that. Social security system is a very honest agency. Each year they issue a report, and then that report they say, all right, we are now paying out uh, X dollars to people. This is what we promised. How much longer can we do that? And they tell us that. And right now, the latest report said, I think it's 2032. They can continue to pay people what they promised them. Uh, when 2032 comes and, and nothing's changed, they're going to cut what people get by about 25%. And then a couple of years after that, they're going to cut another 10%. Uh, because they won't have the money, because of the things you mentioned, that, uh, people living longer, et cetera, birth rate low, et cetera. So what's going to have to happen, Don, is the same thing that happened in the early 80s. We went through the exact same thing in the early 80s. Uh, President Reagan at the time poured, uh, started a commission, so Security Commission, headed by Alan Greenspan. You had all the groups on that. They hammered out solutions, and now we're living by those solutions. And they're going to, uh, my, my forecast is they're going to do that uh, probably around 2030. Now, like a lot of people say to me, well, Walden, why don't they do it now? Because they're going to, some of the solutions are not going to be popular. Uh, in 1980, two of the solutions were raise social security taxes and lower the, um, or I mean, raise the retirement age. People didn't like that. And we're probably going to have to do that again the next round. So I, I am confident Social Security is not going to be thrown away. Uh, it's too popular. But uh, we're, we're, there are going to be changes, and a lot of those changes people won't, won't like. But, uh, yeah, it's the, under, the underlying factors, Don, that you mentioned. We are living longer. I think that's a good thing. We're having fewer 
uh, young people come along to pay. You know, you can view that as good or bad, whatever. From Social Security, that's bad, and we have to accommodate to deal with that. So that uh, changes people's planning on their estate and how long, because again, uh, with people living longer, they're going to need more funds longer. Uh, and uh, with Social Security not being a, as safe as it uh, might be, uh, what should people say age 35 and below start beginning to think about as they look ahead in their estate planning? Well, first of all, I, I don't. I, I didn't mean to imply Social Security is not safe. I mean, they, if, if nothing's done, there's going to be a problem. But I can't conceive of something not being done. Um, so I, I think Social Security will be pretty much as sound in the future to, as it is now in terms of the money that people are going to get. Probably in another 50 years, they will have another round of this. <laughs> um, yeah, I think people, that's one of the things that I think young people, especially, they think when they start working, say they're in their late 20s, early 30s, I mean, retirement, they want to retire, but that's a long ways off. That's exactly the time they should start saving for retirement, because the earlier you save, the less you have to save each month, it's less a burden on you, and you'll be surprised how much that um, how much that accumulates. You mentioned my, my next book, which is an investment book, which hopefully will be out in a couple of weeks, actually. I've got uh, computer programs that people can have access to that allow them to program in their situation and figure out how much do they need to save each month in order to get to a certain level of uh, uh, sustenance, uh, financial sustenance when they when they retire. So yeah, that is that is something I encourage people to do as soon as they get a job. And there are lots of ways. That, I mean, there there uh, there are programs, four hundred one ks, Roth IRAs, etc. There are some programs out there which I talk about in my book that people should should take advantage of. But again, that's something that earlier you start doing it, the better off you're going to be. While we're talking about your book, uh, what's the title of the book? The title of the book, Don, is the 60-minute investment guide. And what I promise in this book, if you read it, you can get through it in a, in an hour. You'll learn uh, uh, you, you'll learn tactics in three areas. First of all, you'll learn. How much do you have to save to reach a certain goal? And I, and I tell people also how to update that to accommodate inflation. That's number one. Number two, I talk about where to invest and what we were talking about earlier where the stock market is incorporated in there. And then uh, thirdly, I talk about how to re how to use your money once you're ready to use it. Now, for some things, it's not a big deal. Say if you're saving for vacation, when you get the time of vacation, you take the money out. But for things like retirement, where you're saving for over multiple years, hopefully several decades that you'll be retired, it gets a little trickier. So that third chapter really focuses on retirement. And my point is you can get through this book in 60 minutes. It's not long and boring and hard. And I've got all the all the uh, technical calculations I ha you have access to on commuter programs that I have online. And so hopefully uh, it'll help people in these uh, financial decisions. And of course, starting early is always key uh, mm -hmm. because uh, you have the earnings along the way of what you've saved and that adds to it. So right. starting early in your investment for the retirement years is a key, I would think. Yes. Uh, the, the, the miracle of compound interest is one of the greatest miracles in society. The earlier you start, uh, that, that compound interest is going to start. And even if you didn't add any more money, uh, you're just going to grow and grow and grow because of compound interest. It's a great phenomenon. We, you know, health benefits continue to go up. Uh, uh, employment uh, costs are, of course, uh, a, that's a part of employment costs, and the employer 
and the employee are very concerned about that. Uh, is there any hope that employment, uh, that the health cost uh, might uh, level out? Well, we did have, if you watch the um, rate of inflation in healthcare uh, over the last decade, we actually did have some moderation in that. The, the issue with healthcare, of course, is we want it to become better. And often that times that means new procedures, new technology, which tend to be more expensive when they're implemented. So there's sort of a trade-off here is, yeah, we'd like cheaper healthcare, but we know that oftentimes more expensive healthcare is going to uh, give us better results. Then there's the other th element here about competition and Treasurer Falwell has, in his career as state treasurer, who all, actually he's also in charge of the uh, healthcare system uh, in, in the state, at least for the state, uh, has, made a, uh, has made these points. We don't we don't have competition in the healthcare system like we do in other parts of the economy. And I think if we could create more competition, that would eliminate some of the um, what I'll call them issues that people often see where they don't know why they were charged this, that, or the other, and they they look at something and say, "Wow, it costs that much." So I think hopefully North Carolina can move in that direction. This is usually at the state level where we can encourage more competition between hospital systems and doctors and all elements of the healthcare system. Because I think in economics, we we believe, economists believe competition is good because it makes all the players in that market work harder to, to deliver because they know if they don't deliver, customers are going to somewhere else. Well, your uh, statement earlier in the program when you had a quiz question that they didn't know the answer, uh, put supply and demand and you're halfway there. <laughs> that, that's, that's right. <laughs> the name of the book is 60-Minute Investment Guide, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Dr. Mike Walden. We're going to talk about student debt and debt forgiveness. We're going to talk about the status of the job market. And uh, uh, also, we want to ask your opinion about Medicaid expansion and what that effect might have on the state of North Carolina. And we'll do all that when we return with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers, and that will happen right after these messages. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! <laughs> Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> a heads up before something bad happens. You should not send that text. Uh-oh. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can reverse prediabetes and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. 
And we're back with the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Dr. Mike Walden, who, uh, as we have said, has been on our program numerous times for numerous years. And uh, we've talked about all sorts of things uh, already in the program. And so if you missed the earlier segments of the program, you may want to go back because we talked about inflation. We talked about his forecast for the upcoming year. And we might want to get you to give a brief uh, update on that because some people join the program and in progress. But uh, first of all, let's, let's talk about the student debt and debt forgiveness program, because that's uh, a question that we get from time to time. Exactly where does that stand and what does that mean? Uh, well, of course, um, under President Obama, the federal government essentially took over um, lend, uh, student loans to individuals. So this is it used to be that you could take out a, a college loan from private entities, the, the Obama administration pretty much federalized that. So um, this is now in the hands of the federal government and President Biden has made one of his planks of his administration to try to do things to moderate what individuals would have to pay and paying back on that debt. In fact, he had proposals to forgive trillions, uh, billions of dollars of debt. Supreme Court said he couldn't do that because Congress has to uh, um, um, check off on that. I think right now the administration is pursuing other ways, but this really comes back on to why is college so expensive? Now we're lucky we're in North Carolina. If you look at the data, uh, and I have for m many times, look at the data on, and I'm going to look at, at publicly supported schools. Uh, I think North Carolina's uh, universities. I'm looking at the university level. Uh, we are the sixth lowest in, in tuition and fee costs. Sixth lowest among the 50 states. And um, General Assembly has been very good at, um, I think, um, being very modest in terms of uh, allowing increases in tuition. So it's not as much of an issue for, if you go to a public school, public college, public university, I should say, in North Carolina. It's not as an issue for, for, for those people. But um, the, the, the fundamental question you have to ask for others in the country is, well, why is college cost going up so much? And <laughs> If you if you look and I've read a lot in this area, Don, because obviously I, I worked 43 years in that industry. One of the answers is colleges raise tuitions because they can, uh, because lots of people want to go to colleges. Now you've got federally backed loans that'll 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 fund them, and it sort of is uh, you're on a treadmill there where uh, college costs go up, federal government uh, allows uh, allows more loans to go out. They go up some more, et cetera. Again, I don't think that happens as much here in, in North Carolina. So I think to really get the heart, if we're talking nationally, at the heart of the issue of college college uh, expenses, you have to really get into why are colleges raising costs and can we can we maybe tweak the system such that they have to be more, more competitive? Uh, or the other alternatives to say, hey, if you want to go to that pricey college, we're not going to have the federal government loan you that money and then pay me forgive it. You're going to have to borrow it privately, uh, like actually you did uh, as short as a, a decade ago. Uh, I'm going to change the subject on you uh, and change over to the job market, because no matter where you go, you see signs on backs of trucks. You see it on the marquee signs. And uh, you just hear it in general conversation. Uh, the job market is still incredible in the sense that everyone seems to be looking for new employees. Uh, is that uh, 
uh, more acute in North Carolina or, or, and how long will that last? Because uh, I know we at Curtis Media Group, we've got something like to 25 or 30 openings and we're not that big a company. Well, it's gotten better, uh, but you're, you're right. I still hear when I talk to, and I try to, I talk to a variety of groups from a variety of industries. Uh, you still hear that, uh, especially in construction, for example, uh, health, uh, government government jobs. Uh, there are a lot of government jobs open, and, and you mentioned even in telecommunications. Um, I think I think a couple things happened here, Don. Of course, it's all tied to the pandemic. One, we we had a lot of federal aid go in to the economy. Uh, I said six trillion dollars over two years and over over two administrations, by the way, to help people get through the pandemic. And that, that aid lingered for a while. So quite frankly, a lot of people didn't have to go back to work immediately when the economy reopened because they, they were getting funding, if you will, from uh, from federal, uh, various federal programs. So that was one thing. Another thing was that uh, during the pandemic, when when things did open up, uh, it's it's been documented that a, many people, uh, particularly young people who are working in low paying jobs, like in a restaurant, nothing against those low-paying jobs, but they're just, they're just low-paying. I, I started out in the restaurant industry. Uh, they they took the time that they were off from work uh, during the pandemic to uh, upgrade their skills. And you might say, well, how they do that? Well, through Zoom, through online courses. And then when the economy reopened, they went off and got a better-paying job. And so those those uh, jobs they left had a hard time uh, being filled. I think I've mentioned on the program to you before, I have a good friend who had two cocktail lounges in downtown Raleigh. She had to shut down because she couldn't get, get her workers back. So, uh, but but things seem to have settled down um, as we get farther away from the pandemic. If you look at statistics like labor force participation, which measures percentage of people who could work, who are actually working, that's gone up. It's still below pre-pandemic, that's gone up. And also, if you look at what's called the quit rate, which is simply measures the percentage of workers who are leaving their job, that's gone down significantly. So I don't, I certainly don't dispute that companies like yours are still having some problems finding workers, but the problem seems to be much smaller than it was, say, a year or two ago. Mike, is uh, another question I wanted to ask you, and want about a sixty-second answer on this because I want you to also recap what you said in the first segment. But Medicaid expansion, what does that do to the North Carolina economy? Well, it, it obviously provides people with uh, more people with um, with secure health care. And the argument is, of course, uh, if you want workers to be good workers, they have to be healthy workers. So I think over the long run, any improvement to health care access is going to improve the economy because it's going to be it's going to make the having workers being healthier and and not sick, et cetera, and that's a benefit to them. That's a benefit to to their employer. I think the I think the the, the question uh, this kind of goes back to what I was talking about before with competition. I think one question that some people have, and I'll let I'll let the listeners decide whether this is a valid question or not, with respect to things like Medicare or Medicaid, where they're they're all government run, federal government run, is again, what does that do to competition? And you always hear the the um, the response that you know maybe what it would be better to do is take all that money we're spending on Medicare Medicaid and provide vouchers to people that they go out and buy their own health health insurance. And there is there are a lot of there's a lot of competition in the health insurance market. So I think that's where the debate comes. It's not a debate about 
uh, better health care makes the economy better. Clearly, that that at least I think that's a solved question. That's not a questionnaire. That yes, it does makes people better, makes better people better personally as well as better workers. I think the question is how do you provide that? And even if you how do you, if you have some help from the government, how do you provide it? Does, do you have the government run the system, or do you have the government provide money resources to people so they can go out and find their own health care? Now uh, you got about. Three minutes and 30 seconds to give us a recap of everything that you said in the first segment about the overall outlook for 2024. So okay. you can condense it a little bit. And uh, this is for people who joined the program late in progress. Well, um, Federal Reserve, number one, I think, is done raising interest rates. Um, so people who are very sensitive to interest rates, I don't think they're going to go higher. Uh, I think they're done raising because they're satisfied that inflation is moderating. That was their whole point of raising interest rates to slow the economy so the inflation rate would be more more moderate. And it looks like as we're ha heading into 2024, that inflation rate is going to continue to moderate. Now, stopping rising interest rates is not the same as lowering them. I don't see the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates anytime soon. I think maybe by mid-year, mid-2024, they will start to do that. Which means I think the first half of 2024 is going to be challenging because with interest rates still high and the inflation rate going down or getting more moderate, that actually makes it more expensive, believe it or not, for people to borrow because they're not going to be able to pay back with inflated as high of inflated dollars. So I think the first half of, of next year will be the challenging part. I'm not predicting a bona fide recession. But I do think we could have some months where the unemployment rate goes up. I think we could have some months where um, the number of jobs in both the North Carolina and the nation go go down. But I think it'll be it's not it's not going to be a crash. It's going to be what I call a challenge. And then I think by mid year, or let's look into the second part of 2024. I think that's when the Federal Reserve will start lowering interest rates, and I think they'll they'll go rather fast. So that by the end of the year, hopefully this time next year, Don, we'll be looking at maybe an economy with two, two and a half percent inflation rate, and maybe interest rates are about two to three percentage points lower than they are now. Well, it is an election year, and so that uh, comes into play also. Well, uh, that that's true, although the Federal Reserve is an independent agency. Um, and I think in that matter, and I'm not a, obviously a political scientist, but I think at that point, given that question, I think it's going to depend when people go to the polls in November, are they looking back and seeing maybe a challenging economy that they remember, uh, or are they going to look forward and say, hey, things are getting better? It's going to depend on how how people evaluate 2024, because I think 2024 will have two distinct pieces, challenging time in the first six months, much more improving time in the second six months. And of course, you uh, were careful to note that uh, changes in the Ukraine-Russian war, the Israeli situation, our relationship with China, all these things come into play and uh, they're all moving parts and could change a great deal. Uh, Mike, uh, one other thing we want to bring up one more time is uh, the book that you're working on, The 60-Minute Investment Guide. Uh, yes. That will be out uh, in about to two or three weeks, did you say? Yeah, that is done. It's at the publisher. They're doing all the final touches, and I will inform my good friend Don Curtis <laughs> when it is out. Uh, but it'll be available on on Amazon, all the obvious places that uh, that you buy books. I think it's going to retail for around eleven or twelve dollars for a modest investment. 
And it's a very brief book, but I think it really gets to the point of uh, investment information that people need. A lot of computer programs you'll have access to to make your own calculations. Well, I'm, I'm anxious to read it. And it sounds like the kind of book that uh, will help people plan not only the immediate future, but the long range plans that they might have for retirement and looking ahead. Uh, as always, Mike, you've uh, given us a lot of food for thought. Any closing thoughts? You've got about 30 seconds for a closing thought. Well, the economy is always, uh, there are always issues in the economy, even in the best of times. And and I try, I've, I've made a career of trying to help people get get through that and understand it. But uh, yeah, do pay attention to to the economic news because it does have an impact on your on your life. Uh, but I do think that uh, things, things will be getting better. Things will be much, much better in terms of the big picture uh, uh, at the end of 2024. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. If you'd like to repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. For those of you listening to the half-hour version of this program, there are two segments that you missed, and you'll also find those on carolinanewsmakers.com. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. He promises me faithfully that he'll have another interesting guest next week, and he, he always lives up to that. So until next week, on the same group of stations all across North Carolina, we hope you and yours have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.